Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Al Bovic. He's a professor. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I, I think what we're what you're doing is really, really innovative and cool. And I'm selfish, you really want to learn more about, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. Okay. Uh, specifically, I my most of my childhood was uh, north of Chicago, North okay. Side, Evanston. Then I went to the you know the state school, uh, University of Illinois in Shampoo Banana, um, and you know Urbana Champagne, <laughs> and uh, got all my degrees there. And uh, I knew I wanted to work with students and be a professor and do research, so I took a job in Austin where it was a lot warmer. Okay, so. What made you know that at such an early age? What I wanted to do? Golly, yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't. I mean, my when I was in high school, I, you know, I was one of those kids, well, I'm doing well in math and so on. I, wasn't, I really wasn't a great student for the first couple of years, and then I buckled down and kind of sped through. But you know, my dad said, you know, you should be an engineer. And to be honest, in high school, I didn't, you know, it's not like today where the students know everything. High school students, they, you know, they, they're probably already coding in Python. But, you know, I'm like, okay, what's, a, what's an engineer do? I didn't even really know. So, you know, back then it was like the space age and the nuclear age. I said, okay, I'll be an engineer. And uh, I signed up for nuclear engineering. But, but I got bored really quickly. You know, all, it was too much chemistry for me. Chemistry, I'm sure, is great. It's just not great for Al Bovic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as far as being fascinated. But and I started seeing some computer science stuff. So I you know, transferred into, you know, computer engineering and that sort of thing. And, you know, I liked the program. It was fun. But, you know, I wasn't like really, you know, that motivated. And and, and I, I got great grades, you know, towards the end in undergraduate. And I said, well, this is great. I like the math. I like the theory. I like control system theory, which was kind of where I was headed. And I went and I worked for a fellow in grad school, uh, working on stepper motors. And I'm like, well, I like the math, but this is really boring. But at that time, I took a course from the great Thomas Wong, uh, who is the greatest image processor of his generation for sure. And I just love that class. He came in, he was wearing a sweater and a mug, and he showed all these amazing image processing algorithm results. I mean, this is, you know, back in the 1980s, you know, nobody wow. was doing digital image processing in the world yet, right? Um, yeah. But there was such potential and promise. And, you know, I realized that, you know, I'm a very visual guy, I like artwork, I love the movies, and you know, I get, if I don't go see a movie every week, you know, I, you know, I go into withdrawal. So, you know, I, I just fell in love with it immediately. And I've been doing that ever since till today. Fascinating. Okay, very cool. So walk us through getting a job at the University of Texas uh, at Austin and, and what you're doing there. Oh, sure. Well, you know, when I graduated, it was just that was 1984 with my okay. PhD. You know, it was the best job market you could imagine. It was the beginning of the high tech revolution. And, you know, that was right when Microsoft had just been, you know, starting to get a hot thing. Apple was hot. You know, there was just so much going on. And I literally, I mean, I had 18 job interviews. It's like the AI guys today, you know. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I interviewed a lot of universities, a lot of companies all over the country. But I knew I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to go to the coast because, you know, a lot of you know, population and all that. And I wanted to go someplace warm after slushing around in Chicago for my whole life, you know, and sure. <laughs> that weather. And and I heard from Tom Wong, my advisor, you know, Austin is a both the university and the town, they have an incredible future. And as in everything, he was right. And uh, so I focused on that interview and it went really well. And uh, well, I ended up there 38 years ago and I've been at UT Austin since then. 
And you know, what am I doing at the highest level? Well, I'm teaching classes in what I love, image processing, digital video. I get big classes these days because instead of being a top, you know, nobody using it now, everybody's using video and digital oh. images, right? You know, your phone, your iPad, the television, you know, you go into a store and there's walls with digital images. It's just everywhere. Everything is streaming now. Television is all digital and streaming and social media. So it's just such a great hot space that, uh, you know, it, there's never a boring moment. Very cool. So walk us through kind of what that means and and what you teach and then let's get into the technology that you're developing because that to me is really fascinating yeah sure so i think today you know people are pretty sophisticated about you know what are digital images they know oh. for example what's the resolution of their display on their television you know oh it's 4k you know and they may even know what those numbers mean um you know or and on their phone if it's an iphone you know their retina display and, and that sort of thing so you know broadly speaking what i teach is you know algorithms for processing images to do all kinds of things you know to make them look better to make them easier to transmit by compressing them into a tiny space compared to their original size uh, so you can send it to a friend that sort of thing uh, for finding things in images like faces finding faces is really important because you know we're primates and we want to know where faces are sure. and that's why you know face recognizers are so important or maybe you're know, recognizing somebody's face or maybe recognizing them by their iris of their eye so you know it's very i mean images uh, let me put it this way vision is utilizes half of our brain half the neurons in our brain those 100 billion neurons uh in some way or other okay meaning we're okay. extremely visual creatures all of us some of us more than others not everybody likes to go see movies every weekend um but you know we're very visual creatures it's our main mode of communication uh between each other especially today uh, so it, it's it's really important in in a lot of ways, and when you you know my other class is video. Of course, this is when you introduce the time dimension. So it's a video is basically a, you know a motion picture, just like you know movies. And now they're digital. They're digital on your television. They are they're digital at the theater now. Uh, and so there's a lot of other interesting questions that arise to make those videos, you know, smooth and continuous. And again, they take up enormously more space and bandwidth than just single pictures do. They are, in fact, you know, videos today occupy about 80% of all internet traffic. Okay, wow. 80%. Actually, I think it may be up to 82%, okay, recently. I I guess it makes sense with YouTube and TikTok being kind of the top apps, right? Yeah, YouTube, TikTok, Netflix, Netflix Amazon yeah. Prime Video, sure. uh, all of them. I mean, you can make a long list. Facebook is, you know, also. So yeah, that's that's what the bandwidth is. So it's super important, you know, to people who are, you know, viewing all of these. That you know, if you're watching Netflix, you're paying that. I don't know what it's up to, fifteen dollars a month or something. You want that experience to be as realistic and high quality as possible and you don't want delays or that little spinning circle in the middle or or any of that kind of stuff to happen and you know if you're like netflix or amazon you know you want to be able to send those at a reduced cost uh so you're not paying for a lot of cloud space or you're not you know having to spend too much time you know uh, processing the video, all that kind of stuff. It's important to them because they spend a lot of money on streaming those videos to your, to your homes. And of course, it's all a competitive landscape, you know, because you already mentioned several of these and they're increasingly in competition with each other. There's Disney, there's Apple and so on. All of them, you know, pushing those bits, those video bits to, you know, hundreds of millions of people every day. Okay, so talk about the technology that you've developed because if you're solving this problem for these big companies or helping solve this problem by making everything faster and smaller or faster because it's smaller or like how to walk us through that absolutely so um i mean you've got the basic idea of what had been developed for many years before you know i became a you know serious researcher in this area which is yeah you 
they knew that you want to send pictures faster and in a smaller form um, because if if we didn't have something called video compression okay yeah we could never send all these videos all around the world okay because we compress them today you know maybe a hundred to one which means you only send one percent as many bits as is in that original video you, know, you send that one percent and the other end they get one percent of the video but then they're able to decompress it and, oh there it is it's the same video at least to your eyes at least to your eyes okay so that's the background video okay. compression has been around for a long time i certainly had you know, didn't invent video compression although my advisor tom wong was one of the inventors of Very video cool. compression so i learned a lot about it from him so what we have done differently in my lab, uh, this is myself and many, many brilliant graduate students I've been fortunate enough to have over the, you know, especially over the last 20 years. Uh, what we've done differently, well, when I came to university, I realized not only am I interested in digital pictures and videos, I began to meet and encounter uh, visual neuroscientists and visual psychologists. And I became very interested in that, started doing research into how we see, how we process visual information in the brain, why we look where we look. You know, we move our eyes around all the time. Why do we look over there and over there and that sort of thing? So I learned, I really became a self-trained visual neuroscientist. And my graduate students, when they joined my lab, I also began to push them towards, you know, becoming also visual neuroscientists, at least, you know, uh, in terms of having the coursework and that sort of thing. So what we've done differently, which really nobody in the image or video community was doing much at all, was to begin to really take how we see the visual brain into account. In, in other words, if we understand how we see at some level, and we do understand it at low levels. I mean, we don't understand completely why you recognize, you know, an old friend's face from 30 years ago or something, but we do know how the visual brain takes what it senses at the retina and begins to process it using uh, some algorithms that crunch it into a very efficient form. And we can model those, those algorithms you know, and that's a good word, algorithms, um, very well, very accurately. In other words, we can create mathematical models of what's happening in the retina and in the primary visual cortex, which is in the back of your head, in the back of your brain. We can model what's going on there very accurately and also some other brain centers as well, which, you know, I won't go into. The point is we can create math models of how we see, at least at a low level, that are very accurate, that fit the scientific data if you make electrophysiological measurements. Obviously not on humans, but they've made them on other animals with very similar vision systems like cats and monkeys. So what we do is we try to take these mathematical models and we bring them into image and video processing algorithms to improve things that are related to the perception of those. So one of the big things that we've done is to create algorithms that can accurately predict what a human will say is the quality of a picture or a video when they observe it. Now, at first you say, oh, well, that's easy. Don't you just look at the number of pixels? And the answer is emphatically no. You can have, you know, a picture with, you know, 50 megapixels that's very poor quality. Okay, because the sensor was poor or your hand was moving when you took the picture or it was low light and so the picture was noisy. There's literally an infinity of different kinds of distortions that can affect that picture, making it, you know, less desirable to view. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just to cut you off. Is, and I don't know if this is true and I'm curious, and I think this is a good time to ask you, is can the human eye can only also see like after 4k or 8k or whatever the number is we can we can't see beyond a certain standard is, is that correct and and does that play into what you're talking about or not really at all oh it does yes because you know there you're what you're really bringing up is the concept of a viewing distance okay okay so your brain your visual brain your eye oh, the whole the whole apparatus has a finite bandwidth meaning 
you know, if you, I mean, a good example is if you're reading a book from two feet away, no problem, but you walk, you know, 20 feet away, well, it's all blurry now. You can't read it anymore. That's because of the finite bandwidth of your visual system. Okay. okay. So, so that factors in then too, like how good my eyes are or aren't into what you're talking about as well then? Yeah. So televisions, okay. you know, the old HD televisions of say the 2000, 10 time period we yeah. call it 1080p um those you know if you get up close and you watch a basketball game you're like man this is full of artifacts you know every player who's running around has all these little compression artifacts it looks like little you know mosquitoes running around them and little blocking mm -hmm. artifacts is terrible but if you are laying in bed or in your couch 20 feet away you don't really see those the you know the right. distance effect removes that Okay. okay, so you know today um, we have very high resolution televisions, and of course, you know a content provider like a Netflix or or a Hulu or something, they're capturing with the finest cameras, with the finest cinematographers, uh, you know, very high quality content. So before it is streamed, uh, it looks great. It really doesn't have distortions, but when you compress it then it you know then it starts to have it you know distortions and in fact the way that a typical streaming provider operates is that they will have for each video they will have maybe 15 to 20 compressed versions of it ready to go in the cloud for when you order that video okay and okay. you know each one uh, how, do, how is it decided which one is downloaded to your television at any given time? Well, it's because they can actually measure the bandwidth conditions. Because, you know, especially if you're on a mobile, imagine if you're on a mobile device, your phone, you know, your iPad, and you're watching your favorite cooking show. All right. So um, the provider can measure, you know, if you're in urban conditions where it's high traffic, meaning high internet traffic, then the bandwidth conditions are difficult. And so they will send a version of the video that has fewer bits. Now, because it has fewer bits, it's of lower quality because it's compressed more. The more you compress, well, what does compression do? As I already said, you're throwing away information never to be seen again. Right. Okay. Uh, although you can throw away a lot and still reconstruct it and it still looks good. So this is one place where our algorithms come in. We have a, developed a couple of algorithms in our laboratory, uh, which are used by pretty much everybody to control, you know, for example, the, the definition of those, say, 15 versions of each video. Okay. okay, so I've simplified it a little bit. They actually usually do this on a per shot basis or per scene. You know, imagine, you know, different scenes of a movie, say, okay. So they will compress usually on a whole scene basis. And then basically it's a file transfer when they send it to you. But they'll create like 15 versions, each one at a different quality as measured by one of our quality prediction algorithms, our perceptual quality prediction algorithms, which will say, well, a human being would say that this scene, the way you've compressed it, would get a score of an average human with very high reliability of, say, 0.95, which would be very good, okay? okay? Another version of the same scene might have, you know, might have a rating of only 0.9. Another one might be 0.85. These are just examples I'm giving. And yeah. the ones that have lower scores will typically also be much smaller files so that they can send it to you in those difficult traffic conditions. Okay. So obviously if they're sending fewer bits, it makes it through better and there's less likelihood that there will be one of those spinny circles, which everybody, you know, doesn't like. Right. So then you're giving, but then, so that's basically what happens when you you start streaming something the quality might be like an eight like you mentioned and then after a few minutes it kicks into that 9.5 it just sends you a different file or how does that work well the client but what i mean by the client is your actual device your television or your ipad or your iphone whatever you're watching on will know that it has a selection of files to pick from okay okay and so based on those bandwidth conditions and also based on well how much bandwidth will this file take to transfer and what is the perceptual quality uh it will take those into account and then ask for the optimal file 
Okay. Ah, okay. The optimal file amongst those. So your television asks for the best one. And typically it will say, well, I want something that has a quality at least, at least this level, if possible, as measured by one of our algorithms. And then it'll find the one that has amongst those, maybe that has, you know, a low bandwidth. So it's a smaller file to transfer. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Is that then part of that loading period? It's deciding which one to send me or or what's happening there? Or it's just connecting or, or? Well, I think that, you know, there is a loading because, you know, you have to transfer the files and that right. takes some time. And what most people don't know is that, you know, while you're watching your television, there are files loading and there's something in your television and in any device you're watching on called a buffer. Okay. Right. And that buffer is basically, you know, holds a few seconds of the video in it. All right. So that way, I mean, for what if Netflix, you know, the bandwidth gets so bad that for a split second, Netflix is transmitting nothing to you. Okay. Stream case, but right. it does happen, you know, in downtown Manhattan or something for maybe for a couple of seconds. Well, the TV will still keep playing because it's got a, it's already buffered, meaning stored a few seconds of the video. So it keeps playing. And then, well, if the bandwidth conditions improve, then what fill up the buffer again, you know, and, the, and it's just, you never know that the, that the available trap, you know, the bandwidth went to zero when that happens. However, sometimes, you know, it cuts off for too long. The bandwidth gets too low or goes to zero for too long. And if the buffer empties out, that's called, you know, a rebuffering event. And you get a little spinny in the middle of your screen. That's when you get the spinny and everybody goes, oh, and it goes back to sleep if they're <laughs> watching at night, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the compression scenario of what we do. Uh, and that's what some of our algorithms do. And those algorithms, as I mentioned, are based on models of, you know, how we see, but more specifically, um, well, let me just back up a little bit. People sure. have known about distortions for a long time. You know, they've known about blur. They've known about, you know, noise. They've learned about, you know, jitter or shake if your hand is unsteady, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, every type of distortion really has an infinite number of variations. So you can blur a picture in infinite number of ways. Uh, it can be, you know, there's different lenses um that have different blur functions so if you're out of focus in different ways uh depending on how you're moving the camera accidentally because you have un you have shaky hands that blurs in different ways uh if the light is low then the sensors um then give a blurry out i mean it just goes on and on there's just really an infinity so people haven't been able to adequately model distortions well enough Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's what, but nevertheless, that was 30 years of research, trying to model all the distortions and then predict them. But it never worked. Never worked. So what we did that was different is we said, we're not going to try to model the distortions. Instead, we're going to go inside the brain. Okay. And we're going to try to statistically model the responses of neurons to pictures that are distorted instead of you know, pictures that are not distorted. And we found that if you do that, there are very predictable differences between the statistics of distorted pictures, no matter why and how they're distorted, and pictures that aren't distorted. Okay, and it turns out okay. to be very, very accurate predictors. It's all, you know, internal to the brain kind of prediction. And that's why our, you know, algorithms worked, and they were far better than anything that came before. Um, and it, you know, became noticed by, you know, television people in the, you know, around the 2006, 2007 time period, which uh, gave me an opportunity to be a little opportunistic and reach back. And, you know, pretty soon it was being used throughout the television space um, to control the quality of the, you know, the content that people are receiving. And now it's pretty much everywhere. Very cool. No, that's awesome. Okay. So how does what you and the team have developed play into some of the newer technologies that are probably going to make their way to the web more and more coming kind of from a VR, AR, metaverse type uh, technology. Absolutely. So um, 
let me let me just back up a little because sure. it'll um, because there's other providers that don't send high quality content. Okay. Uh, so there's other people than the Netflixes and all that, and that, and that means social media. So if you go on YouTube, you know, you, you play a video. Half the time, it's well, I don't know what percent of the time, but <laughs> you see videos that are are terrible. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's really important to YouTube and to Facebook and to TikTok and to companies like that uh, to understand the quality of those videos. And those videos are afflicted by a much wider range of distortions okay. than Netflix. Netflix is just compression, pretty much, and some scaling. You know, sometimes they make the video smaller and then expand it. Right. Uh, but YouTube is just a huge number of possible distortions because people have you know so many different kinds of cameras so many different kinds of lighting conditions so many different skill sets sometimes the videos are old you know you'll get you know 1940s you know right. videos television from the 50s or 60s uh you know just everything uh, in indie studios which you know uh videos that have been processed like a hundred times over the years so crazy and there's just no way to model that but again uh these brain models they work okay and so companies use these to assess you know they go and buy content right okay? if you're a provider they use our algorithms to examine the videos they're considering buying because there's too many videos for humans to look at at their company uh, you know, they buy lots and lots of videos. So another big application is, you know, algorithms which can, you know, just take a video and decide, you know, what's the quality right there. And that's another, you know, series of algorithms that we created that are very widely used. So back to your question, it's a great one, VR, okay? okay. Uh, immersive, AR, XR. The whole idea there is, well, it's true of television too. Uh, is a more immersive experience where you're there, right? You're in the middle of it. You know, that's part of the reason why we go to the movies because you feel like you're there. Um, so, you know, VR is kind of the ultimate of that or has the potential because you don't, visually, you don't have any other experience. There is no boundaries to the screen. Uh, you know, it's a three, it's, you know, another term is 360 video, which you're watching through a head-mounted display. So we're doing very interesting work there with some companies including meta labs uh who is you know oh. big in this space sure um and you know when you put on a helmet and play a game all right that game is pretty much graphical computer graphics right which means that it's uh rendered and rendered content well it's pretty high bandwidth but it's not as high bandwidth as cinema and cinema is much more detailed and not as predictable because you don't create it, right? If you can create right. something, then it should be easier to compress, right? Because heck, you created it, uh, you know everything about it. But cinema, you know, or television, it's much higher bandwidth. So you'll notice that uh, if you ever, you know, played with a an Oculus, you know, you don't yeah. really look at much content that is like, you know, super high quality movies. Totally, yeah. Um, but that is absolutely a whole holy grail of the whole VR industry. Um, not AR. AR is a little different, but the VR industry is to put you there. So you know you're you're watching the Avengers, you know, and it's it's so realistic and high resolution that you know oh when Thanos you know is sitting there sadly you can pat him on the hand or something you feel like you're there right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah. And so the problem with that is it's so high bandwidth. So, you know, we have televisions today that are 4K. 4K is totally inadequate for virtual reality. Oh, uh, first of all, well, think about it. The screens are just, you know, an inch away from your eyes, right? right. So first of all, it's very close. Secondly, it's complete surround view. Right. Okay. And thirdly, you're moving your eyes around and your head. Okay, so, right. you know, it's a whole huge 360. So the videos really need to be, you know, 8K at least, 10K preferably. Okay, that means, you know, that's like four to eight times as much data right off the top. Um, and you want it to be high quality because, boy, are they going to notice, you know? I mean, sure. I, think, I think people are, would be a little forgiving now, you know, new technology, oh, it's cool enough, that sort of thing. But, you know, they, they want it to be perfect. And uh, so what does that mean? Gigantic bandwidths, okay? Right. Gigantic amounts of data. 
And there's another thing. They don't want that big wire coming off the back of your head, the tether. That's the, you know, right. you can buy VR helmets that have a big tether to your PC, you know, and that carries that bandwidth pretty well. But, you know, you want to be able to walk around in your yard or out in the park or wherever sure. you're going to do your VR experience. And uh, so that means, you know, somehow it's got to be, you know, all in the helmet somehow, which is pretty darn hard right now because, you know, you don't want it to, it's just something on your face. You don't want a huge form factor or Wi-Fi or some right. equivalent. Okay. So Wi-Fi is the you know, best solution right now, but still too much data. So what are we doing? That's kind of a big lead up. Okay. What are we doing? Well, back in the nineties, one of the things that we were doing, as I already mentioned, was, you know, predicting where people look, where they look. Okay. Right. And one, yeah, one reason we wanted to do that is because of the way the retina of every human being's eyes is built. So it's basically a sphere. The back half of the sphere is covered with, you know, rods and cones. We'll just talk about cones, which are, you know, what you use when watching videos and daylight and all that. You know, the rods are for nighttime. So the cones have a very high density right in the middle, right where the optical axis of the lens strikes the retina. A very high density of hundreds of thousands of cones per, you know, millimeter squared. But Away from that, it falls off very, very fast, becomes many, many, much lower density of cones. Uh, and the reason why the brain does that, it's an immediate form of data compression. So mm -hmm. the human visual system is an incredible feedback control system where somehow you choose where to put your eyes based on like activity or color or action or as a face or whatever the eye moves around and what's really happening is that the brain is allocating the highest density area of you know your photoreceptors to the area of interest around it everything's blurry so if you're ever reading a book you know you, the word you're looking at is sharp clear but all the words around are blurry that's because they're being sensed at a much lower resolution by these surrounding areas of the retina called the periphery, okay? Okay. Um, so why is this important? I know it's two or three steps, but if we know where a person is looking, we can compress those gigantic VR videos in a different way. Ah, interesting. Okay, by making them, you know, the compressed versions, very high resolution, at the point of gaze where we know the person is looking and then have the resolution fall off more. So we compress enormously more. We get, you know, another 10 times factor maybe of compression in that way, which is enough to be able to maybe do VR, um, you know, in with cinematic quality at, you say, 10K inside, you know, a head-mounted display. So that kind of foveated compression we're doing, again, uses brain models. Uh, we are both looking at, you know, predicting where people look, as well as using visual eye trackers, which sit in, we have helmets, head-mounted displays that have visual eye trackers inside that very accurately actually measure where you're looking. And these, you know, are commercially available, too. So, you know, it's not in every Oculus you buy or anything like that, but it might be in the future as, you know, cinema really becomes a big thing in VR. And so we're, that's what we're doing. We're using um, principles of visual neuroscience again, you know, how the, the mapping of the retina is, very high resolution in the middle and then lower and lower, lower as you get away from the center of the, the retina uh, to create, you know, VR specific ways of compressing that content. We were doing that in the 1990s, you know, we just thought it was exciting and cool and everybody was just yawning at us, you know, nobody cited our papers and foveated compression much, you know, but suddenly VR comes and now it's a hot topic. Fascinating. No, very cool. So then just to go back to what you said a few seconds ago, that some of these sensors might actually be in headsets in the future. So are, are you suggesting to companies like Meta or other companies you work with, look, we can do compression to this point, but if you want better compression, you guys need to put in these actual pieces of hardware into your headset or whatever it is. Are you guys there yet? Or it's just, that's kind of like the hope down the road. 
Oh, you can put the you can put eye trackers in now for sure. Okay, and, sure. and they do. I mean, I don't, you know, typically it's not sold yet because there isn't a big reason yet because we, uh, you know, the foveated compression algorithms. This is current research, because okay. the old stuff we did in the '90s was, you know, you know, first baby steps. What we're doing today is we're using, well, because it, it's got to be really good, right? Uh, we're using, you know, deep learning to learn, you know, foveated video compression. Okay. Um, that sort of thing. So the algorithms and the you know hardware, or let's just say the solution to knowing where a person looks, uh, are evolving together. So I mentioned that maybe we can predict where they look. You right. know, we studied that back in the night. We wrote, you know, we had you know big grants from National Science Foundation for you know figuring out where people look and why, and we made good predictors, but they weren't good enough. Just not good enough because it's complicated. People are people are complicated. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, three people watching a TV show, you know, depending on the content, people are looking in different places. Right. Right. So it's complicated. And, you know, maybe some people want to see the shiny new car, you know, the, the handsome guy, the pretty girl or the action in the background. Who knows what? Right. So, uh, you know, the algorithms are too low level, not smart enough. But, you know, it may be possible that deep learning engines based on massive data sets of you know where people look as measured by eye trackers which is a great ground truth uh if we can you know develop deep learning algorithms that are accurate enough then we won't need the eye trackers it'll just be more processing in the helmet saying well for this content these are the two or three places people are most likely to look probably not just one but two or three and then you can have you know multiple places where you allocate you know higher resolution compression so that's a okay. possibility too. So both are possible. It might be the eye tracker solution because the predicting where people look problem is still very hard. You know, some people think, oh, deep learning can do anything. It's not really true. So maybe that's a maybe on that. But we know eye trackers are accurate and pretty cheap today it, and can be used for that. Interesting. But then could you take it a step further then? Because you say, okay, if you know people traditionally look at these three parts. But if I was willing to give you my personal information to say, Kevin would probably look at this one of the three because we know his personality type. Like, could you take it that step further and personalize it to me? I would say no reason not to be able to do that. Okay. Okay. I mean, anytime you're talking about personalization information, I, I just want to say, I don't do any work like that. Okay. No, fair enough. <laughs> I'm really a video guy, you know, I'm just brain in videos, but you know, people could do that. And, you know, naturally any, anytime you talk about personal information, you know, a little sensitive topic too. Right. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, assuming that some, let's just say innocuous, uh, personal information is available, such as, oh, you like basketball, okay, or your favorite player, you know, you wrote somewhere as, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, or, you know, stuff like that. And even that, I don't know if that's giving away too much or should be private or what. Uh, gender, age, that sort of thing. I'd say it's conceivable, of course. Not that I'm suggesting it because I'm not right. sure how much it would be an add-on, um, not, you know, notwithstanding what I just said. But I think it's conceivable it could help you know determine with greater reliability which direction somebody's going to look but then you know there's an awful lot of assumptions there there's guys who like looking at guys for example so you right. know i mean it's it's just too hard hard to hard to you know hard to know you know necessarily but people see in you know very much the same way you know people's vision systems setting aside those that are visually impaired right. uh, people's visual systems are remarkably similar okay so we actually you know tend to largely look if you look at you know a a an image that shows where a bunch of people looked at you know it, you know get pointed their gaze like little red dots or something point of gaze now people largely agree uh just like you know people incredibly agree about picture quality okay i mean if you if you show a thousand people a picture and ask what's the quality and then you divide those people into two groups those two groups will have a very high correlation above 0.9 typically in agreement about whether it was the quality of that picture. So, you know, quality, where you look, all that, to some degree, there's a lot of repeatability or, you know, or predictability uh, amongst people. But, you know, predicting what <laughs> general population will look at, still a difficult problem. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, 
I, I'm curious because I, I don't think it happens very often and, and it's probably really challenging, but you've seemed to bridge the gap between research into actually making this a real business. What advice do you give to other people like yourself that have technology that they could actually leverage to companies out there? Because I, I know at least the university here, they put a ton of money to try to actually like productize research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, my approach has been a little different because, okay. you know, I entered as an engineer. I was yeah. very much a theoretician, you know, I wrote proof theorems, that sort of thing about pictures and videos. And, uh, but then I became interested in, in the science side. Okay. So a big key thing there is I crossed disciplines. Okay. Wow. Which is if I give, you know, any promising young research engineer or scientist, any advice, first thing I'll say is, you know, it's the problems between the spaces that are often the most interesting and often have the greatest impact because you know people you know your general engineer or scientist you know you, you have to leave your comfort zone you've already been uh, to school once you know but then go learn visual neuroscience forget it you know that's i'm already doing something interesting so um it's hard to do that and so i encourage you know crossing those disciplines so that you can find the problems that that are in between okay now when you do that you find interesting things so uh what one thing i didn't mention is okay. you know we don't just do the theoretical modeling of the brain we put in the perspiration okay so that's the second thing the kind of huge perspiration we put in is not just a lot of thinking about theories and all that we conduct very large-scale human studies and have been okay. doing it pretty much every semester for the last you know, 20 years. Wow. So what we do is, you know, we sit people down in front of, you know, monitors. We show them pictures and videos and VR and 3D, you know, movies and all that kind of stuff. And we ask them to rate them in various ways, like what's their quality, you know, what kind of distortions do you see, you know, where, you know, then we, or maybe we record their eye tracking, you know, where they're looking. Uh, and we've, you know, literally collected tens of millions of human judgments of, you know, picture, 2D, 3D, streaming video, high frame rate, HDR, ultra HD, you know, every aspect of video and pictures of the quality of all those different kinds of quantities over, over the years. Uh, and we've even gone on the internet to, you know, um, do crowdsourcing, which is really hard to do. It takes sure. months and months and months to design a crowdsourced study of, you know, pick people looking at pictures over all over the world <laughs> and recording the scores, right? Like quality sure. and that sort of thing. Because one is, you know, well, probably the biggest thing really, well, there's the logistics and all that. It costs a lot of money. So we have to get grants from industry typically. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cheaters out there, <laughs> you know, yeah, okay. uh, there's, there's a, there's a tool called Amazon Turk yep. uh, where people get on there and they make money because the people are making money and you 90% of them are honest, but that 10% can really follow up your human study because they, they literally like write computer programs to just do your study automatically. And then all the, all the, all the, everything that's entered is just garbage, you know? Oh, wow. And, yeah, things like that. Or they just tap the, you know, button over and over again as it goes from video to video. So we we're able to detect all those things at this point, you know, and and just throw them out of the study and so on. But it's a lot of work. But to get to your point about industry, and I know I'm flying along verbally. I hope, you know, if you have any questions. Just inter no, no, I've been interrupting you. It's good. Okay. So, I mean, I have to tell you, they noticed us first, okay, okay. To, the, to the credit of industry. And, uh, you know, we are, we've just been doing what we've been interested in okay however but, sorry, you know, sorry sorry can i cut you off there sorry yeah so you got uh like they reached out to you but you must have well you mentioned you were publishing papers and whatnot but was there anything else that you were doing to put yourself out there to potentially get found by somebody in industry uh, well, yeah, I mean, we're mostly, as you say, publishing papers. One of the biggest things we did was uh, I've never really been 
entrepreneurial type, at least okay. not in those days. Okay. Um, you know, recently I started thinking about just for something else to do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's some people I'm talking to, but I won't get into, into all that. Okay. I'm okay. engaged. I'm actually involved in a couple of things, but not talking about that today. Um, so what we did was we created algorithms and we just put them online. You know, we ah. created a website. We said, anybody wants to use these. And that includes all of the results from every human study we've ever oh, done. Fascinating. Okay. So, so you had developers the then? There. We put the data out there and we okay. put the software out there. Okay. And then people started to use it. And then people who are perspicacious in industry noticed it and they tried it and they said, wow, this works. Okay. We can actually predict quality is kind of the reaction. So that's awesome. Yeah, we got calls. Uh, there was one company called Video Clarity, which was a very early one. It's run by a guy named uh, Blake Homan, very small company at the time. And he just said, you know, this this is great. You know, can uh, uh, we'd love to you know, work with you know work with you on this? And you know, I'm, I, my response was, look, we will help you out here. And you know, this code is already public. All right, there's the intellectual property has vanished. Uh, in terms of dollars, you know, so we'll help you in every way for you to uh, help market your video clarity products. And pretty soon, you know, they were selling one of our algorithms called the Structural Similarity Index or SIM. They were selling it all over the world wow. um, in their systems and, uh, you know, being very successful with that. Uh, later on, um, Netflix approached us. They were the first of the real biggies to okay. approach us. And you know, we're, I'm just sitting there doing my research and uh, they were using one of our algorithms in a larger algorithm in their system, um, which is called VMAF, okay? But it's mostly our algorithm in that. And they were experimenting with that and finding that it was, you know, working well for streaming Netflix content. And uh, they said, well, we'd like to work to, with you on other problems too. And so they have funded us for, you know, better part of a decade on wow. all aspects of perceptual streaming video, you know, in their space, you know, far more than I can, you know, describe right now. Uh, but I can say it, you know, involves things like, you know, high frame rates or, you know, deep learning based video compression, all kinds of things that, you know, can happen in their, in their workflows. Uh, same thing happened with YouTube. Same thing happened with Facebook, now called Meta Labs. Same thing happened with Amazon Prime. They wanted to, they saw that we were, you know, kind of unique in this crossover between science and engineering, and they came to us. So we were, I just say, we're very lucky, you know, right place in the right time, doing kind of work that fascinated us and which we love doing. So uh, a lot of a lot of fortune there in terms of of becoming relevant. Very cool. So are you actively trying to recruit more companies now or are you still kind of just, well, when they come to us, we'll try to accommodate or a bit of both? Well, you know, I mean, I I meet people and so on, but I okay. honestly haven't recruited a company to fund our laboratory in more than a decade. Well, it sounds like you don't need to. I don't need to. You know, I yeah. this year, the, you know, there's two or three more companies, including a a company called ShareChat in India who reached out oh, to us. Cool. They're funding one of my students. So, you know, this, it's just happened that way. Okay. And I, I, it's very unusual. You know, if I, if I'm telling a young, a young engineer, you know, well, you know, don't be that way, go out and be very proactive. And I used to be that way, you know, so beyond 10 years ago, I would contact companies, I'd meet people at, and I'd say, look, I've got this great student, you got an interesting problem. So I used to do that. It's just that we, you know, we just had such a unique position in this space that we haven't had to do it anymore. And, you know, we're funded by like nine or 10 different, you know, high tech, you know, streaming or social media companies right now. That's awesome. Well, congrats on that. That's huge. Yeah, it's, it's been great, you know, but what it's really been great for is the students. Sure. So when they come to me, I tell them two things. I say, number one, uh, the students here are number one. Okay, so the reason I'm talking to you guys um, is I want to match up fantastic engineering problems in the video space with fantastic students. And, uh, and you are going to become a collaborator in education with me. Uh, if we have this relationship, <laughs> and it, it's worked out that way. So, with every company I work with, you know, I, we agree that we're going to meet once a month at least. Although usually we meet much more than that, uh, in one way or another, um, where the student will present what they've done and uh, give slides and all that, and just think about. And then they give feedback, 
and just how wonderful it is for a graduate student to be getting feedback from the video team at Netflix. Yeah, totally. You can't really you know? get bigger than that, right? <laughs> yeah. And at Facebook, other sure. things. And it, I mean, we're talking to the core, you know, video team at Amazon, you know, every, once a month. That's In cool. fact, that's what I was the call I was on this morning with two of my students. So that has been what's worked really well for me. And the students get to work on the best problems and the do relevant research that actually goes into these, you know, globe spanning workflows. Sure. And what was the second thing you tell them? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I, I may have balled that all up in there. Oh, in okay. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, work on, oh, there is a second thing, of okay. course, since it's the benefit of the students. Everything we do is publishable and wow. goes in the open literature. And you think, well, how would they ever agree to that? Okay. Because yeah. naturally companies are competitive and want to be proprietary and this and that and so on, but they agree. And one reason for that is that they all realize that if we succeed on their problem and well, yeah, others learn too. Well, it raises the whole space, right? It's like all ships rise with the tide. And so, you know, if we create an algorithm, which we've done recently that uh, helps with high frame rate videos, meaning okay. like faster than 60 frames per second, like your current television, like 90 or 120 that can, you know, be used to control and monitor the quality of those videos, boy, is that going to be important for what's coming because sure. live sports, you know, that's where they want that. And so everybody wants to go into that. And so, yeah, they could, you know, if we develop it, everybody benefits is kind of the thing. And then the internet, you know, isn't used as much. And we haven't really talked about that too much, but the internet is even you know, with 4G, 5G and, you know, fiber and all that, the internet is stressed, data stressed. Okay. Right. And video is continuing to increase exponentially because the videos keep getting bigger. The televisions are getting bigger. Uh, they get, they're getting, you know, deeper, meaning more bits like HDR, you know, and uh, high frame rate, uh, richer colors, everything is, keeps getting bigger. And so the, and more people, more and more people everywhere are using it, you know, watching videos. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really, an ongoing problem that has to be continuously addressed. No, fascinating. But, and I, I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface, but sadly we're out of time. So mm -hmm. how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the program and, and the students and what you guys are working on? Well, we've got a website, uh, the Laboratory for Image and Video Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, if you go there, things you can find are, first of all, um, all of our data sets, completely free. There's, you know, like 35 terabytes wow. of video data and human opinion scores on all of them. That you, wow. For all, every scenario you can imagine involving pictures and videos, 2D, 3D, all that, okay? Every algorithm that we've created, we put right out there. You can download the code and play with it, and, you know, try to apply it you know, to your own situation. Maybe you've got a camera you want to put it in or something like that. Uh, descriptions of what we do and also, you know, my course notes. And I confess I don't update the online course notes on the website there often enough <laughs> relative to one in my class, but you can see what kind of stuff I teach and, and that sort of thing as well. And pretty good description of everything too. Very cool, Al. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Thank you so much, and thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, okay. bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.